Welcome to Vox Vomitus, also known as Word Vomit. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of Vox Vomitus. I am your host, Jennifer Ann Gordon, the author of the Hotel series, as well as the award-winning novel, Beautiful, Frightening, and Silent. With me today, as always, are my Vox Vomitus vixens, Trisha Ridinger-McKee, author of the Beyond series, and Allison Martin, author of the Bourbon Books. I wonder where she got that name from. <laughs> no clue. No clue. It's a mystery. Um, today, we also have the fantastic Miss Nola Nash. Welcome to the show, Nola. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to join you. Cheers. 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 Uh, so, Nola, when you're done drinking, tell uh-huh. us a little bit about yourself and about the book you are here to promote and we're going to be talking about. Sure. I am Nola Nash. I am originally from South Louisiana, born and raised in Baton Rouge, but I now live just outside of Nashville, Tennessee, in a beautiful, picturesque little town called Franklin. Um, and I'm right on the Franklin Brentwood line, like literally. Google says one thing, my address says something else. So I'm actually on the line. <laughs> just, you know, very confusing for the UPS people. Um, but um, I have my three kids here, but I'm in college, which is lots of fun. So, you know, especially in these days and age, seeing them has been an interesting journey. I have a high schooler, also an interesting journey. <laughs> that's, an, that's an age old freshman in high school. And when I'm not writing, which I do quite a bit of, I am an online teacher. I teach eighth grade English. So if you have ever known or had a middle schooler, send all your thoughts and prayers my way. I need it to get through the year. <laughs> it's been a weird year for teachers. Y'all, you know, one hug one. Uh, no, but like air hug air one. Hug. I was like, don't, don't touch, touch a teacher. <laughs> don't touch a teacher. It, it could be as bad for you as the teacher because, you know, they've got a thousand kids in a building and a thousand kids with germs. So just air hug a teacher, but they need it. Um, and I am the author of the Crescent City series. So the first book is Crescent City Moon. And the second book is Crescent City Sin. And I've got two other series that will be launching very soon, working on sequels to those books. And then I will loop back around and be working on the third book in the Crescent City series, which working title at this point is Crescent City Soul. So got some fun stuff, fun stuff. So no, I pulled a whole lot the from my new ones. Is the first one yeah, and the second one or just the first one? First two are out. Yeah, okay, okay. Second City Sin launched in October of this year. Crescent City Moon launched October 2019. So they've been about a year apart. They both launched right in time for Halloween, which if you've read the book, that you know why perfect. we launched it then. <laughs> That's perfect timing. So um, congratulations. You have a lot Thank going you. on. I don't know how you do everything, how you write as much as you do and work full time and uh, you know, supervise a high school student who's like living <laughs> in your house. Do you have well, pets? She spends a lot of time in her room. I do have. <laughs> I, yeah, high schoolers like to be in their room with their doors closed, so there's a whole lot of you know, don't bother me. So that's great. Um, we got other things to do, um, and when they're in a mood. Um, but I do have a pet. I have got my ten pound Havanese puppy named <gasps> Dudley. And Dudley, it takes over my Instagram pretty regular. In fact, um, my 18-year-old, she said, I think there may be too many pictures of Dudley on your Instagram. And I put that out to the Facebook people. And I said, "Um, 
Gracie says there's too many pictures of Dudley on on my social media, and was like this flood of people were like, no, never too much Dudley or Dudley. I showed it to her and I said, see, I told you. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I, I wouldn't have Instagram followers if I didn't have a dog. He has, like, I'm they're, sure, they're more there fans for than the dog. Me. Yeah, if my dog was writing my books, they would be huge <laughs> bestsellers. But you mm-hmm. know, I'm just I'm just a mere human. Yes, uh, I, I cannot be nearly as cute as Dudley is, and he wears pajamas, and so everybody uh, loves him. He wears these little old man pajamas. They're like they they, oh, like, they go over his back legs and everything. Like they've got pants and the little collar, oh, and he oh, lets you put looks, him in those. He likes them. That's the weirdest thing. There's um, something wrong with your dog. I like it, but there's something wrong with your dog. <laughs> Some dogs like an outfit. They like it. Okay, he's one of them. It's like wearing a little hug. Mm-hmm. Well, I think because, you know, after he had his surgery, um, we put him in like, I, I got some little like zero to three month baby pa- like pajamas to cover him up so he wouldn't like look at the incision. That and is so what I, I did. That's I put him why in he likes these. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the, why he's yeah. decided he likes them because that was comforting and like that was kind of like, okay, I'm all right now. And so now he loves his pajamas. And so he's got, he has more clothes. And my mother is the funniest because she told me when Dudley first came about and he's, he'll be a year old next month. So when we first got him, she said, I will disown you if you become one of those crazy people that dresses their dog. You will not put clothes on him. Guess what she got him for Christmas? He had his own box of clothes from his grandmother. (laughs) So yeah. wait, you, can you disown her then for going back to the wood or how does that work? I don't know, but I'm telling you what, the woman's got a good taste in dog clothes. She bought him a great coat because he's always cold. He oh. is the most spoiled dog on the planet. I mean, I'm not, I don't have celebrity money to spoil him that way, but I will tell you, he does have his own electric blanket that plugs into the outlet in the car because he gets oh, cold at night. <laughs> he goes to get in the car and it's not warmed up and he just shivers and oh so he has one of those uh, he has an electric blanket that i will like wrap him up in and he'll just snuggle down in the front seat oh. he's too cold <laughs> so i believe that probably classifies as, as worse than mom going back on her word <laughs> no no you're being a responsible dog mom Yes, right. dog he would freeze everywhere. to death otherwise. He would freeze. <laughs> I mean, he's, he probably has hair. It's not fur, right? It is hair. Yeah, so See. it's not it's not real warm. It's very thin. It's you know it's very fine and silky. Cold. <laughs> so let's I talk about <laughs> your Crescent City series. Um, I am a sucker for any book ever that is set in New Orleans. So thank you. Um, <laughs> And especially, I love witches and unknown powers and things like that. Um, what made you decide to set the book in New Orleans? And did you feel like New Orleans was another character that you were writing about? Oh, absolutely. New Orleans is a character, whether it's in a book or not. I mean, yeah. let's be honest about <laughs> New Orleans. I mean, and all the people that are there. Growing up in Baton Rouge, if you wanted to do anything, you went to New Orleans to do it, pretty much. New Orleans was, you know, the the cultural destination of, you know, everything fun happened in New Orleans. And so as a kid, I spent a lot of time going down there for various, you know, various things with my parents. And then as I got older, just with friends. And 
I loved walking around the French Quarter. I was always a big history nut and I loved reading like Regency romances and stuff. So I was always into the, the old stories. And so a city that is 300 years old is full of stories. And when you look at the buildings in New Orleans and you're walking around, so many of them are nearly that old. I mean, very, very old buildings. And it's interesting to think about the stories that those buildings could tell. And there was such a colorful past that changed so much in New Orleans. And so it was always something that kind of drew me there. And not just the the, the historical side, but the acceptance of a variety of faiths and kind of the anything goes and all of the lines that sort of blur between the magical and the mundane and are totally accepted there. And so for me, it was just fun to play with that. And I loved the city for that fact. And it was kind of my joy in life to put it into a book with all of the things about New Orleans that I loved. And when I sat down to figure out, you know, I had the story ideas, what all do I want to include here? I want to use New Orleans. Is it, you know, this aspect or that aspect or this aspect? And really it was all of those things. And so it became, what happens if all of those parts of New Orleans collide? You know, we've got the history, we've got the magic, we've got the faith because the Catholic church is huge there. What if you just slam it all together and make it play nice? You know, what happens? And it does. And it's awesome. It does. So for me, that was the joy of the whole thing and why New Orleans was the choice because it always pulled me down there. I always say that the, you know part of my soul lives in New Orleans because I can go down there and all of a sudden I feel like I can breathe again. It's almost like just feeling like you're back at home, even though I grew up in Baton Rouge, which is just an hour away. You know, Baton Rouge is home, but New Orleans is kind of where the soul goes. You I was know? just about to say, that's your soul's home right there. It is. It really is. And actually, um, a medium friend of mine, she said, you know, this is your home. You know, I, I don't care where your body ended up, you know, elsewhere, but this is where your soul lives. This is this is home to your soul. And, you know, it'll always want to come back home. And I agree with her wholeheartedly, 100%. You know, even I love though, that like, so and she knows these things, she's, she's right. I mean, it feels that way. Um, you, you know, one of the things I adore about New Orleans and like fringe New Orleans is I love the, I, I don't, it's going to come out wrong, but like the swamp culture, like the, the like I, I've yeah. been fascinated by that since I was a kid, the healers out in the swamp, the, where the, like, as you said, like the Catholicism meets the voodoo and mm-hmm. uh, it's just, ripe with inspiration my well, other favorite thing about new orleans is sorry to cut you off is when you look at real estate listings and they'll say like haunted not haunted <laughs> yes. like one bedroom apartment haunted, so haunted. Like, yes i love that they actually get more money for the ones that are they do. It's, it's not a deterrent that's actually a selling point <laughs> like, yeah. you want to make sure you put that in there because that's what people are looking for <laughs> yeah they want a haunted apartment above a voodoo shop in the french quarter <laughs> exactly. that is where exactly. they want to live. that is where i real estate i would want to live there i mean if i was going to live in the quarter that's exactly what i'd be looking <laughs> for and honestly they can say haunted or not haunted all they want i would challenge anyone to find a building in the French Quarter that is not <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like you can this. put that on your listing for the you know the scaredy cats, but I'm sorry, honey. There, <laughs> there's no way you're going to walk in that city that's not haunted. Yeah, you can it's feel it. You can feel who it. Who is it haunted by, and whether or not 
they're a good roommate. That's really the Is this someone who's like, oh, thank you. You closed the cabinet for me. I left that open. You're very mm-hmm. concerned. <laughs> and there are some of each. And again, the medium friend of mine, I've, I've worked with, with Willow for quite a while. In fact, she helped me research a lot of the things that, that are in the book and, you know, the seance and you know, all the things that are in there. I worked with her and I worked with a beauty priestess on some things. And, you know, we were talking about, you know, the spirits that walk New Orleans and the fact that it seems like there are more dead than living. And, you know, with 300 years of history, there probably are. And you know, she said, if you think about it, a spirit is what a in death, what a spirit was in life. So if they were a crappy person in life, they're not going to be a kind spirit. And so they're going to be just as a, you know, curmudgeon when they're dead. So, you know, it is kind of, you know, who were they before? And that's how you're going to know, you know, what kind of roommate they would be. But there is an apartment that you know, has been rented out, kind of turns over quite a lot down there because the ghost that haunts it would always, would like, women would rent that apartment because it was in a fairly safe area where it was, but um, they would wake up in the middle of the night with a man sitting on the foot of their bed. But all you do is just sit there, but it was enough to freak them out. Really? And so you know, people would break that lease and get out of that apartment all the time because they just couldn't stand the guy sitting on the foot of their bed. Like that's all you do. <laughs> there should no. be a clause like in the in the lease where you, mm-hmm. it describes the kind of ghost you're getting. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you have to be fine with not going to touch you. But he's going to sit there and, you know, just hang out. Like, are you cool with that? No. If, no. If you're not, if you're not no. you know, you don't sign the lease. That's right. That's, there should be full disclosure on the type of haunting you will encounter. Yes. I mean, it's, it's not there will or won't be. It's just, what is it? Get your, get your... Your description well, and, of Trump. And Nola, you touch on that so much, and at least in the first one, and full disclosure, I only read the first book, so don't spoil anything for the second. Oh. But, but how you go between, so it isn't presented like, oh, any kind of spirit is automatically malevolent. It's like, no, there's there's a war going on, really, and you handle that so beautifully. And I just was curious whether some of that stuff was stuff you knew going in or had experienced, or if some of this, you were talking about your friend, whether that friend gave you a lot of like cliff notes on walking you through how this works. Cause I've, I've read a lot from that era or that area and never have I seen such a beautifully detailed description. I mean, it's not a how to book, but there's so much yeah. in there about the use of candles and the use of different herbs and how you even how you process the herbs. Mm-hmm. I've never experienced that in a book. And it was just, it brought everything to life in such a vivid way that just ah, chef's kiss. It was, it was beautiful. So I'm assuming so your friend helps you with a lot of that. She actually, she was part, part of kind of polishing some of that up, but I actually was, I had the first draft of the book done before I met her. Oh, wow. Yeah. So she and I met as I was working on Crescent City Sin um, and needed more to draw on for that book. But a lot of what I write about, and one of the reasons why it's so detailed and kind of that how-to book is because so much of that culture in New Orleans is sensationalized. It is corrupted in the way that it's presented. It's like and a tabloid version. It's not. It's not yeah. reality, and that's that's exciting. But then it also lends this air of almost falsehood to it. Mm-hmm. So that I think this yours is the first I've read where I go. This feels like people would actually do that. And it's and not crazy people running around handling snakes or anything crazy like that. It's 
it felt very mm-hmm. grounded, which is weird saying, well, there were ghosts and it was grounded, but yes. <laughs> well, and that is, that was sort of the whole point of it for me. And, and because New Orleans is so near and dear to my heart, I wanted to do right by the city and its traditions. And so I set out, and that's one of the reasons why I was able to enlist the help of, you know, people in that community of both the, the magical community and the, the voodoo community. And, you know, being just set on getting it right was what kind of finally opened them up to allowing me in to their world and exploring that. And I'd always been drawn to that. I've always researched a lot of that. I've always kind of fiddled around with a lot of that, but having, you know, people that that is their everyday kind of come in and, you know, help me to do those things. I learned how to read tarot as I was researching that book. I, and you know, anything that is in there, I've done it. And that hands-on research is what makes it, gives it that grounded feel because it, it's, a, it's a sensory experience. All of this is a very sensory experience. Yeah. And one of the great things about that, that type of magic, whether it is, you know, the seance, the tarot, the candle magic, or more of the hoodoo side of the, the voodoo faith, it's not exclusive to people with certain abilities necessarily. It's materials that are commonly found around you. They they use the things that they can easily get their hands on, whether it is red brick dust that they put on a doorstep to keep, you know, an evil spirit out, um, salt, herbs that are readily found and grown nearby, you know, bones of the food that they would eat and then keeping those bones to then do work with them. So all of these things are available to anyone who wants to learn how to do this. And that was sort of the point. And showing people that anybody can do this makes it seem less fantastical. And it helps to kind of let the reader more easily suspend their disbelief about everything else that's in the book. And so it pulls them into that world of magic because I could do that, what they just described. I can do that too. So if I can do that, then this, Maybe this is not so far-fetched after all. And so bringing the reality, the authenticity of that practice is, is super important to me. And I continue to experience things and continue to talk to people. And anytime I have a question about something that I want to put in the books, I run it by Willow. And I run it by, uh, there are several people, you know, Willow is a friend of mine down there. Um, the owner of Starling Magical is a friend of mine down there. Um, Bloody Mary of Bloody Mary's Haunted Museum. Uh, she talked with me the last time I was there because I was getting a bone reading kit because there is a bone reading session in book three. And so if I'm going to write about it, I need to learn how to do it. Right. And so mm-hmm. I wanted her to make sure that what I was doing was historic bone reading, not modern day bone reading. And I think she would know the difference. And so she sat there with me for a while and you know, she said, you got any questions about it? You let me know. And it's important to have those connections to get it right because so much damage has been done by getting it wrong. And it's important to me because I love that place so much and I love these people and I love their faith and their traditions. I mean, I have a voodoo altar set up in my bedroom. It's a working altar. You know, I've, it's one of those worlds that once I got into it, I didn't want to get back out because I like it so much. And so I think it was always kind of part of me tugging at me. And that's why I like the city so much. And I was always drawn to those things. 
And so, you know, having that experience with it now, it's, it's almost become, you know, it's very much part of my life. And it's, I guess that's why that's, you know, she always says my soul is in New Orleans. And that's part of being your soul in New Orleans is having that part of it too. That's perfect. And yeah, you give such respect to the traditions and the culture. And I think that helps people see it as a religion and as a faith and not just something mm-hmm. that they they saw in an episode of the originals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. no, nothing bad about the originals. Klaus was nope. hot. But. Like <laughs> I'm telling you, there are some great vampire shows mm-hmm. and... <laughs> You know, American Horror Story, Coven, you know, being down there with Marie Laveau. And I'm sorry, but Angela Bassett is a heck of a Marie Laveau. She's fantastic. Completely historically inaccurate. Nothing about that. It is entertainment. It is. And people in New Orleans will see it as entertainment. But they also know that that is is, nothing like how it really is. And so that's the Hollywood version of it, which is fine. It's entertaining. But I wanted to get that authentic side out there because honestly i think the authentic side is more interesting it's it is, it is. stuff it is and, i've read some of the stuff that probably isn't so accurate and it isn't as engaging because it doesn't pull you in because you just think okay what next ridiculous thing is going to come out and then you just lose really any investment in the characters because you lose that grounding in the reality where you start and I was, I was going to say, you you treat voodoo very respectfully, but you also handle the Catholic Church beautifully. Mm-hmm. And I just thought it was wonderful that you were able to kind of pull in both of these things that can be maligned in our media, and you had them woven together in a beautiful way, too. So it wasn't like we were pitting one against the other or any of that. That that didn't occur in the storyline either. Again, not, not a story. Which it wouldn't, because in New Orleans, they do play nicely together. Right. There's yeah. a synergy there, and, and there's a mutual oh, respect. I, I liked how that was handled. But you don't often see that. It's not usually how those things like, oh, no, those are the old ways. The old ways are wrong. And we have to correct them with beat them over the head with the crucifix. And that never occurs in your book. So, yeah. And there was a time there was a very brief period of time and where people did have to hide their voodoo and, you know, old world faith Mm -hmm. in the Catholic saints. And they, they do line up rather nicely. And honestly, if you look at world religion, you're going to see these same kinds of things over and over and over again. So it's very easy for them to hide their Orisha behind the saints. And then it became part of it. And mm-hmm. it still is to this day. I mean, you will find people that you know, venerate both groups mm-hmm. and it's absolutely fine. Marie Laveau, of course, we all know her as the voodoo queen of New Orleans was a devout Catholic. She went to mass every time mass was, I mean, she was there on Wednesday. She was there on Sunday. She was there on every holiday where she needed to go. And yet at the same time, she was doing all the things that she was doing and the faith that was important to her. One of her best friends was Father Antoine. And Pierre Antoine and Marie Laveau worked together. They worked with the poor. They worked with, you know, um, healing yellow fever victims and caring for them. You know, they worked side by side. And so even though there was a time where it wasn't as accepted, it was always an undercurrent. And it really was the Spanish who had the biggest problem with it. And the Spanish only had New Orleans for about 40 years. And so it was this little you know chunk of time where they really had to lay low. But the French were very tolerant of all of that. And so, you know, the Catholic Church had 
I, I was just going to ask. So I don't have a French background. I mangle all the names. Can you please pronounce the main character's name in the first book? I know it starts with a Z. I don't know what to do with it after the Z. <laughs> Zaley. Her okay, name is Zaley. Okay, I wasn't sure if it was Zeoli or Zaoli. I didn't know if it was a <laughs> sound. I am... Every Zaley. time I every time Zaley. I tried to say it in my head, I was like, that sounds like a pasta. that's different it's because i'm writing about italy right now in my book and one of the other characters that's a little harder to pronounce is selene i was gonna guess i didn't know if it was solene selene again selene i took spanish it is not helpful here (laughs) <laughs> and Celine. And those are the Camille, two parties. <laughs> yeah, Camille. <laughs> Camille's pretty easy. Okay. And we got Lizette and Celeste. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're all pretty easy. Louis. And that's the other one. It's not Louis. It's Louis. Sochet. 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 Even that Louis one. Right, and I had it wrong. <laughs> well, you're close. That's closer than a lot of people will get. So Louis, not Louis, because in yeah. French it would be Louis. So Louis Sochet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it looks like saucier to me. So. It does. It smells like saucier. If you're going to say I it, it's saucier. Lesson. Yep. Louis Sochet, Zaley Cheval, and Celine Cheval. So, <laughs> Trisha, we haven't heard from you tonight. Yes. Do you have any questions <laughs> for Nola? I do. I do. Your love of the location is just tangible. I mean, it's so inspiring. And I have to ask did the love for New Orleans kind of inspire writing? Um, was the writing, the love for writing kind of inspiring using the location? Or was it both these loves that just seem to blend together so perfectly? I think it's both of the loves, honestly. But I always knew that whatever I was going to write, it was going to be New Orleans. Now, okay. you know, the second series is not in New Orleans. The third one is back in New Orleans. So I kind of go away from New Orleans for a little while. But because of the stories, just historically, of that city, it, it it is so just beautiful and frightening and horrible and then magical. You know, there's so many different things that you could pull to write with in New Orleans. And I, I think I was always a storyteller. You know, I, I, it, I was not a writer until I was much older, but I was a storyteller. Did a lot of theater. So I always got the story in the theater, you know, and I love that. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Sorry. There she jazz hands. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but I grew up in community theater. My mom and dad were part of the community theater. And so, you know, I was either on stage or working backstage, helping my dad build sets. But it was all creating a story. And, you know, I told stories when I was a little bitty girl. My mom read to me a lot. And, you know, I would tell the stories that she read to me to stuffed animals and friends. You know, I was a storyteller. And it wasn't until I was older with children of my own that I finally said, you know what? I have my own stories to tell. It's time they actually made it to paper. And, you know, they weren't fabulous at first, but they, you know, they were good practice. And then it's kind of like when that kind of synergistic moment of this is the story and this is the time. And now we put those two things together that Crescent City Moon came about. But New Orleans was always the inspiration always. I mean, I, I wasn't that kid that would be like, you know, I'm going to grow up and go down to New Orleans. So I can go to Bourbon Street and hang out, you know, down there and do a whole sorts of horrible things. I was one that was walking around looking at, you know, the ironwork and the mm-hmm. stuccoed buildings and going, I wonder who lived here before this was like this. And, you know, 
like looking and reading the plaques and stuff. <laughs> I was that kid. But it, there were lots of stories. I mean, if you just walk the streets, even the plaques that are on the wall, the stories from these historical markers are incredible. But you got to slow down and, and take the time to do it. But there's so much to take in in New Orleans. So I think having the luxury of being from that area to go down all the time, I was able to sort of slowly soak it up. Feel like visitors to New Orleans feel like they're trying to take in the city through a fire hose. You know, it's, it's I was completely area. overwhelmed when mm-hmm. I was there. Um, I took probably thousands of pictures of every single doorway mm-hmm. I passed. They're um, wonderful, aren't they? They're, they're amazing. Beautiful. The peeling paint, the cemetery, mm-hmm. like every little bit of it. And it's, you know, it's my favorite United States city. And, mm-hmm. you know, and it's one of the places that I, would go back to time and time again, willingly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Speaking of the cemeteries and pictures of the cemeteries, the picture on the cover of the book is actually a photograph that I took. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of the oh, cemetery. Have, yeah, it's Lafayette oh. Cemetery, which is in the Garden District off of Washington mm-hmm. Avenue. And Lafayette right now is, is closed for renovations and has been for mm-hmm. a while. Um, but I love Lafayette Cemetery, even though it's out of the French Quarter um, it's not as touristy, you know, now because of a lot of the defacing of the tombs, St. Louis number one, which is right behind the French Quarter, you have to go with a guided tour group and things like that. And they, you know, mm-hmm. are, you know, it's a little more watch the people who go in and, you know, keep an eye on them. The Lafayette is one that you can just go walk around and it's just peaceful. I love the cemeteries, love the cemeteries. They're not creepy to me. They're creepy to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. They're not creepy to me. They're very peaceful. And again, it's the stories. I've always loved cemeteries. My grandmother used to love to walk in old cemeteries whenever you know, I'd be with her and we'd be walking around and looking at the, the tombstones and she'd be telling me about dates. You know, look, this child died at this point. So what was going on historically at this time, this is probably why that child didn't live very long. And you know, she was telling me the story of tombstones of people she didn't even know because she was piecing together together the history and the family and kind of looking at the tombs around it and so for me they're storybooks too and so I love them I love the architecture and you know all the above ground tombs and statuary and just the beauty that's there and to me it is such a relaxing place to just go stroll around there's a peace there it's not a creep out factor as much as a peace there and the above ground burials in new orleans is so unique it is unlike anything you're going to find in the united states they actually took the tradition from france and brought that over um but it served the purpose very well even though it was traditional to bury people that way it also um was necessary in new orleans because there was not a water table you have no ground (laughs) yeah and you know the caskets would pop up I mean, if the water table rose and any big storm, no, no, you don't. And I mean, there, I had a friend of mine who lived on the West Bank of New Orleans. And after a major hurricane, after I guess it's Hurricane Andrew hit, um, there were graves that had come up out of the ground that they thought was, you know, a safe place to actually use the below ground burial. And they they popped up out of the ground and they floated to the end of a cul-de-sac and like just were like circling and like where the fence was at like a dead end. And a dead end really a dead end. Yes. But I'm bumped. I need my own drum kit over here. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, they they just had to figure out where to put the bodies back. And like, where did they come from? Who are these people? Figure it out and and get them back where they belonged. And so to avoid that, you know, the 
and then the French Quarter without having very much solid ground to use anyway, um, it worked because they couldn't have all these people laid out, you know, for, you know, big farmland fields. I mean, they had to consolidate because that's all they had. So how do you consolidate? You use the same tomb over and over again. And so generations of people are buried in the same tomb. So you can look at, at you know, some of them have as many as 50 75 people. I think there's one in St. Louis, uh, number one, that's got, I think, 85 that are there in one of those things. So the the system of how that works, and it's just, it's a natural crematorium is basically what it becomes. And it's fascinating to, to see that and to be kind of around the different styles of them. And Lafayette had one that was open for a while. It was not being used. And so part of it, you could see the shelf. It was like, it, it had actually kind of been left open as like an educational thing for people who didn't understand how it worked. And so you could see the shelf, you could see and where they would go and then how they would wall it up. And it was, it was pretty fascinating to, to kind of see all of that in the wide open. And then I ended up doing the tour guide thing, which is kind of, I, I should really <laughs> watch what I do. I walk around and then I see this couple who's standing there confused. <laughs> that thing, And I'm going tourists. <laughs> see what they do <laughs> you know? and so I'm kind of like I mean everybody practically everybody in that cemetery is for a lot of the locals do kind of walk around again for the piece of the place but I kind of watched them for a minute and they're just very confused about why this tomb is open and the fact that there's no one in it and yet the plaque next to it has all these names on it so I I explained it to them I was like you know would you would you like me to tell you why that is and they're like yes please do and so then they asked if, if I was a tour guide and was I doing another tour that day? <laughs> no, sorry. <laughs> no, just obsessed. Just a graveyard creeper. That's really what I felt like. I was like, I'm going to go now. <laughs> I guess I'm <laughs> Um, I think you're in good company here, though. Um, I'm a huge cemetery fan. I grew up really close to one. So that is where all the neighborhood kids would go and we would just hang out there. It's where I walked. It's where I smoked my first cigarette. <laughs> I worked for a funeral home. It's not going to creep me out. <laughs> and Trisha yeah. lives next door to a I, cemetery. You open my front door and it's a cemetery. Mm-hmm. That's so. great. See, I would love that. There's love one. It. I live in an apartment complex and we actually have like one building over and up on a hill is the cemetery for the family that the land that the apartments are on used to belong to. And so we have the McKay Cemetery up there and it's really cool. Again, it's very small, but it's a neat little quiet spot that you can just kind of just go be quiet for a while. And I like it. I like going up there to that one. It's not quite Lafayette Cemetery, but that was one of the things that I really liked about, you know, when I picked out my apartment here, I was like, I'm going to be by the cemetery. <laughs> on it, like on it. away from one here too so it's like why do why is it that this group is going you know what we need to be by more tombstones we need more tombstones in our lives we're not, dead people. not nearly enough dead people in our lives <laughs> oh my gosh um so you're working on i know we're slowly running out of time but you're working on another series that's not the crescent city series as well, do those books take place in New Orleans, or are you not the next series, but the third series does? Okay. So there's there's two more series coming out. The next series is Traveler, and Traveler is more modern fantasy, although there's history in it because our main character she writes promotional material for a tour company, and her boss keeps sending her out to have authentic experiences so she can write about them. 
But Shelby, I always describe her as if Anthony Bourdain was a 20-something chick. She's, you know, snarky, sarcastic, a little unappreciative of the job that she has, even though it's a dream job. And she's working desperately to hide these cracks in her armor, and she drowns everything in a bottle of Chianti, you know, as she's going along. So, you know, she's not handling life real well. But she gets sent by her tour company, and her next assignment is to go tour Europe because she's supposed to be writing professional promotional material for the company's new magical history tours. And so well, the magical history tour, magical history tour. History tour. <laughs> yes. So she's got to go and get, you know, all of this stuff. So, you know, but as she's touring these kind of old places, she starts having some strange experiences because history has a bone to pick with her. So she's Ooh. been born in the wrong time and has missed her destiny. And so history is trying to guide her back. And so her journey through that book, through space and time, is about learning who she is, who she's supposed to be, and where and when she's supposed to be, and then how to get there. Okay, well, I'm so going to need that coming out. Yeah, when is that coming out? <laughs> I'm not sure. It's supposed to be coming out this spring, so we shall see um, how quickly we get that one out. Um, I'm sure I'll be looking for some ARC readers before long on that one. So, <laughs> hands well, up. Like, All right. Yeah. <laughs> we're we're okay. you on social media now. It won't be hard for you to track us back down and go, do you Absolutely. Yes. I'll and all of that making me totally miss Anthony Bourdain. So I'm just going. I know. I, I read well, his book as well, and I'm just going. So I Anthony Bourdain's still not with us anymore. All right. Yes, and I mean that was that was a hard day for me because so much of you know her character was sort of an homage to him, and just I I loved him, loved watching his stuff. I mean, it was. It's like having him in the background not only gave me a glimpse at the world, but a glimpse at kind of mankind. And I love that. Mm -hmm. So I kind of twisted her a little bit where she's not appreciating as much as he was appreciating. You know, it was kind of like he would approach things with the cynicism, like, I'm not going to like this and then fall in love with it. And I love that idea of of really needing to own your own biases and Hmm. then kind of come around. and. So she does a lot of that too. And so it's, it's interesting to watch her journey and it was fun to write her journey. Um, but all the while kind of having him in the back of my head as I'm writing going, you know, what would he think of this? What, you know, would he approve of me saying she's a 20 something year old Anthony Bourdain. And I think the way that the story plays out, ultimately he would, he would be okay with that. Does it have as much of a culinary feel to it? Because I'm, I'm a huge foodie. I mean, so, she she definitely enjoys some food, and there's some funny lines, especially around food. She gets to Rome and orders a plate of spaghetti and meatballs, and her Roman tour guide has to tell her that that's like, only no. there for the tourists. You know, we don't eat that. Maybe yeah, <laughs> it's something authentic. That is not it. Mm-hmm. And I was, mm-hmm. was going to say when when you talk about uh, New Orleans, most people will think of everyone knows Anne Rice. That's kind of required. But one of my more recent, more modern set New Orleans books are culinary fiction written by Poppy Z. Bright. I don't know if you've read some of those. Uh, I haven't read them, but I know who that is. Liquor and Prime, and they're they're so good. And I, I couldn't talk to somebody who has visited New Orleans and has such a beautiful homage to it the way you do in your books without asking, when you go to New Orleans, where do you eat? I eat first at Cafe Maspero. Cafe Maspero is on Decatur, and it's right across from Jack's Brewery. 
And they have an amazing crawfish Benedict that I will go and get for breakfast. <laughs> it is a giant biscuit with a crawfish cake as opposed to a crab cake mm -hmm. on it, poached egg, and basically what amounts to a etouffee sauce. Okay, so it's, it's not a etouffee instead of a holiday. No, so it is divine. And they have got some of the darkest, strongest coffee you will ever taste, but it is so good. And for that's breakfast. Mm -hmm. Usually lunch is standing in line at Cafe du Monde because, you know, you're walking around. Got to do that. Or just kind of grabbing something. But for dinner, my other favorite place to eat is Cafe Pantalba. And, you know, this is if I'm just kind of hanging out in the quarter. There are places all over that you could go and eat. And lots of people are going to have their favorites. But I like to watch the sun go down sitting in the window at Cafe Pantalba because the way that the sun sets, it hits the cathedral. And the, the mm -hmm. so it's just amazing. Just watching the sunset in the quarter like that on the cathedral is my favorite thing to do is to sit there at that corner of Jackson Square and watch the sun go down on the cathedral. So those are my two places that I will not, not go when I'm down there. So I have well, to go to both of those places. That is amazing. <laughs> I feel like that is the perfect way for us to unfortunately end our visit, but we will have to have you back. Um, you. Especially yeah, once we, we read the new book. Traveling yes. <laughs> so thank you so much, Nola, for being here. Vox Vomitus Vixens, thank you for being here. Uh, I want to thank Roman Sirotin, my lovely husband and our producer, and Pam Stack, our executive producer at the Global Authors on the Air Network. This has been a copywritten podcast. So we will see you all next week when we have New York Times bestselling author Tuska Lee.